0: Ari Rosemount here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast. This week's topic, we're going to talk about features that turn your 401k plan into a relic. Of course, first things first, that 401 com for the information on all, all our events. We've got a plan sponsor a virtual event October 13th, 26th and 27th, I think it is, of January. We've got a national virtual plan sponsor, a, na- a national virtual plan uh, advisor conference, uh, as well as... Um, Dates for uh, live events May 3rd, June 6th, Texas, Arlington, Texas, Bronx, uh, New York. Um, again, that 4 k site.com, blog posts, a lot of stuff here and there. Uh, my views on life sometimes, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and again, um, just go there, get the emails, you could certainly um, sign up. Um, for free, that 4K virtual uh, conference. Uh, we always have fun on those two days in January. Become an annual thing. Uh, you know, always a lot of fun to speak to with a lot of different plant providers. If you're interested in sponsoring it, it's really, really cheap. We'll even give you a discount if you decide to sponsor the live events. But anyway, when it comes to relics, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so you kind of laugh at some, some things. Um... I didn't live in a house that had a dishwashing machine until I was about 25, because our kitchen in Brooklyn was so small, there was no room for uh, anything. There was no room for a dishwasher. So I didn't know how a dishwasher worked until we moved to Long Island. And we actually didn't have a microwave oven for like the longest time, because there was again, no room. So my father's partner bought us a microwave oven and we put it on a separate cart in the dining room, because we had no room in the kitchen. And I think we were the last people who had uh, touch-dial phones. We still had rotaries to the point. It made, absolutely made no sense. Uh, but my mother would actually have to go to the uh, street corner uh, and page my father with, um, w- with a payphone. Because uh, that, uh, that had touch-dial uh, phones and we still had rotary. So I think we were the last people on earth that still had a rotary phone. Even as an adult... Um, I might have been the last person who had an HGTV. Uh, I've been married now 20 years this week, it's been 20 years, um, and when we first got married 20 years ago, there were still um, analog TVs, and we went to Costco and we bought an analog TV. Uh, it's hilarious because it was like a 23-inch TV, and if you remember those analog TVs, they were tremendous uh, in weight. And I remember couldn't fit it in the back of my car. I actually had to take the new TV out of the box and put it in the back seat. I don't think we got a digital TV until 2007, maybe, or eight. I, I think even later than that, I was convinced that uh, plasma TVs were not going to be a thing. LCD was the future, and of course... Uh, not LCD, LED, and then of course we now, what are we? OLED and whatnot. If you see my, if you see my TVs, they're about 12, 13 years old. But uh, listen, um, as you can see with people, you can certainly see uh, people without new technology. I just saw somebody recently with uh, uh, using a flip phone. Um, but if you wanna be part of the old technology and still play with the Atari 2600, uh, which we still have in the, uh, my wife's Atari 2600 is still in the garage. I refuse to get rid of it. If you wanna use old technology, that's yeah, great. But there's a lot of provisions out there in the 4 k world which are old and really makes your retirement plan look like a, a relic. And right off the bat, I think the number one thing, what makes your plan look like a relic Limits on salary deferrals for uh, participants. Um, I understand why plans may have a highly compensated employee deferral limit because, you know, plan fails ADP. You want to have a plan limit in there um, to make sure that the HCs don't, you know, go over the limits and, you know, because testing is obviously a problem on the ADP side. But prior to 2002, it was a strange rule. It made no sense. But in 2002, for employee, for employer deductibility, the limits were very, very limited. Um, You had 15% of comp was your deductibility limit. But the craziest part of that was your 15% deductibility on a profit sharing, 401k profit sharing plan, was that deferrals counted towards that limit. It made absolutely no sense. So, um, I remember when I started work uh, as an attorney working for Harvey Berman, uh, may rest in peace, and uh, you know that was part. Uh, you know I was working for Harvey and uh, working at the offices of the TPA that Harvey at one time owned, and then it, became, it was Mobius Tech and it became Cbiz. Um, I was part of the 401K plan, and it was I was like I was like the only participant participating. Uh, the problem is I actually had at one point had we, we did get a matching contribution and I did have to cut back on my um, deferrals in order to uh, you know in order for us to make that 15 percent limit so uh, that was that was that was annoying uh, but that was the rule and then extra came around and about It started effect in, fact, in 20, uh, 2002 uh, Etra changed um, the limits. So the limits on deductibility on our 401k profit sharing plan was now 25% of comp, uh, and deferrals weren't included. So that was a huge, big deal. But yet, if, you know, when I was restating plain documents in 98, 99, 2000, 2001, uh, that was, you know, sort of the gust statement. Uh, the problem was, um, you know, we'd still have limits under the plan, you know, 1 to 15%, 1 to 20%. Uh, eventually, you know, we change that. And, uh, you know, we, I, I usually draft a plain document. Uh, you know, I work for Geller Group, and they always like to put 70% as the limit. Some people like to put 90%, and I always put up to the, the limit allowed. Uh, obviously, you're, you're you know, part of your salary, you're paying for Medicare and Social Security and all that stuff, so you can't really put in 100%. But there's no reason outside of an H.C. limit that a plan should limit um, solid deferrals for the employees, especially considering non-high leaders, we want them to defer as much as they can. Um, so it, it's just crazy that there are plans still out there that have these crazy limits that made sense 22 years ago. Next, um, it's like a DB, you know, in a DB world. Um, 401k plans, you know, they started 40-some odd years ago. Uh, back in the day, um, they were an offshoot of pension plans in, in a sense. And uh, one feature that early 401k plans had, um, and I think they still have, I, I've never, never had it. <laughs> I've never worked on a plan and and, and uh, had it, but there was a provision. There still is a provision that would be, you know, found in defined benefit plans. And that provision is we won't distribute retirement benefits until actual retirement. Um, I always thought that was silly. So we're not even talking about a 65 rule. you will get it at 65. It means I I won't give it to you if you actually retire from the firm. And listen, it makes sense... uh, for defined benefit plans because you got a defined benefit at normal retirement age. I, I get it. Uh, and then they've made the further accrue benefit and all that kind of stuff. And the distribution of benefits would, you know, mess up the actuarial calculations and this, this, and that. I understand why defined benefit plan has that rule. 401k plans are not defined benefit plans. They're defined contribution. of retirement savings uh, typically will be the plan participant. So, you know, um, DC plan plan participants have their own account balance, uh, you know they got it in the ledger, and whatever there is theirs is theirs. There's no actuarial calculation if they decided to take a benefit uh, pre-retirement, pre-actual retirement. So um, you know, I just don't understand why you know in, in an actual time. Reti- I just don't understand why would you want to keep money in the plan for these. You know, what would become former employees? I don't want these people out of the plan. I don't want them to wait till you know, actual retirement. I want them gone, especially if they left me. Go away. Uh, uh, adios. Uh, I don't need you. And uh, it just never made sense to me. Why would you keep these people in the plan even if they don't work for you anymore? Um, you know, former participants are more likely to complain about you uh, than current participants. Just that's the nature of people. You get fired uh, for one reason or another, you're going to take it out on your former employer and which way you can, and a great complaint to the Department of Labor would go a long way. I've known people that did that. I mean, they were right in their complaints, but if they were a current participant, they wouldn't have made similar complaints because, again, participants are, you know, passive-aggressive maybe, or just, you know, they don't want to start a war with somebody who's still signing their paychecks. You know... Form participants can be a huge pain in the rear end. Um, You don't need them. Uh, They're gone. Uh, Because they have the same notice requirements as as current participants. Um, And you have to keep track of them. You have to provide investment education, theoretically. Um, If you plan as ERISA 404C. And uh, again, I don't need them. They're a headache. Um, You know, a plant participant should get a distribution, you know, for termination of employment. Uh, disability, or, you know, age 59 and a half. Let them take their money and go, especially if they're not there anymore. Next on the list, hit list, a plan where the trustee directs investments. So, again, saying, you know, 401k plans when they were from the outset, you know, they were DC plans, but they still had that kind of like hallmark of defined benefit work, because again, it wasn't daily valued. We didn't have have the technology to do daily evaluation properly. I don't say we, because daily evaluation was a thing when I started in 1998. But, you know, we're primarily trustee directed. Technology obviously caught up in the late 90s, the internet and all that stuff. But obviously, that's when mutual fund companies realized that 401k plans are a really uh, attractive way to distribute their mutual funds. So they made a big 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 push for a 404c plan participant direction. And the whole sales gimmick was, listen, you give the plan participants the right to direct their own investments and, you know, you're going to limit your liability. Of course, what they never told the plan sponsors was, by the way, on the ERISA 404c, you got to do something and that's to educate your plan participants by providing them with enough information for them to make informed investment decisions. Uh, listen, plan sponsors forgot that. Uh, those advisors who didn't know anything about retirement plans, they forgot that too. That's a whole other story. Um, I'm um, When it comes to trustee-directed plans, I mean, the fact is, I will say it and I will say it again, 401k plans are probably better if they were trustee-directed um, because trustees would listen to uh, the advice of financial advisors. There would be asset allocations. That would make a lot more sense. And, you know, ERISA 404C merely allowed the least informed people in the room, the plan participants, the right to invest all their assets. And I don't think that plan participants have been, you know, over time have been better uh, were, were better served with that kind of uh, thing. I think plan sponsors were better served by limiting their liability. But I don't think plan participants did so well. Um, you know, and... and I can complain all I want about participant, you know, direction investment, but you know I'm not going to be Don Quixote over here and uh, you know try to hit a windmill because at the end of the day, this is what it is. Um, the industry, the mutual fund industry, got its way. Technology won out. Ease, um, and that that's the, that's the way it is. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, uh, you know, there are people out there that like Tab. Um, Tab soda. Diet Coke came out, which is a funny story about Diet Coke. I hate Diet Coke. I'm a Coke Zero fan, Diet Pepsi, Diet Dr. Pepper, anything other than Diet Coke. When I was a kid, I liked Diet Coke because I didn't like Tab. But the funny thing about Diet Coke is Diet Coke came out in 1982. I want to say Tab came out in the 60s. And the reason it was called Tab was Coca Cola didn't want the name Coke in. They didn't want another Coca Cola. They didn't want They didn't want to. You know, they thought the brand name was so damn important that they couldn't have it on a diet soda. And then with the advent, you know, all the Diet Pepsi and this, this, and that, Diet Coke came about in 1982, which is kind of funny. It's just, it always reminds me of the, the thing about Disney when they opened up Epcot they didn't want Mickey Mouse involved, so they had figments and and all that, and Mickey Mouse was never a part of it, really. It was something completely different. Now you can't tell the difference between Epcot and Magic Kingdom these days, because a lot of that educational stuff went bye-bye and the World's Fair type things and kind of minimized. But going back to Diet Coke, the funniest part of Diet Coke was, people don't realize, but because of Diet Coke, we had new Coke. So Diet Coke, was when it came out, '82 was a big, big hit. It had this kind of weird, sweet taste, and it gave the co- people at Coca-Cola the idea to screw around with, um, you know, the Coca-Cola formula. They decided to change the formula. Um, it was a big disaster. The funniest part of the change of Coke to New Coke was that in blind taste tests, New Coke beat Coca-Cola. Classic or whatever. Now it's just regular, back to regular Coke, but it was hilarious. Um, they won the taste test in the Coke, but people at Coca cola didn't realize that people did have this attachment. You know, Coca-Cola was Americana, and so they forgot about that attachment. Just focused on the, the tastings and, and whatnot, and made that change. But you know, that's you know, that's a big digression from it. But you know it is what it is. I mean, I, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, you know, plan participant direction is the way it is. And if you got trustee directed plans out there, that's kind of a relic. Uh, obviously, plan sponsors are more prone to liability for it. Um, you know, you do the whole end of year annual valuation, uh, but it's gone out of favor. It's a relic of the past. And it's just Really, a relic. I I, I can't remember the last time I saw a trustee-directed 401k plan. Um, when I worked at CBiz 25 years ago, yeah, I, I did come across trustee-directed plans, uh, but uh, but uh, that's been a it's been a very very long time. Next, uh, stated matching provision. I I absolutely hate the stated match provision. I come from the belief that when it comes to legal documentation on retirement plans, less is more. More is is not less, more is just more. And you know, it's just too much. And it reminds me, I, I worked uh, for less than a year for a uh, risk attorney, really really brilliant woman, just deal, dealt with union pension plans. Uh, she thought more was more, the more I write, uh, the better I could build my clients. and I, I just never felt that way. And uh, I think the stated matching provision is an absolute mistake. Obviously, these days, you have a matching provision you plan, keep it discretionary, come out with a resolution declaring what it is, and, and that's it. But how many times in my lifetime, as an ERISA attorney, when times were bad and people had stated matching provisions, they got stuck with it? Meaning it was in the plan document, the plan participants accrued a benefit, and it was you couldn't kick it out so easily because it was a cutback in benefit. And uh, what do you tell your client who can't afford that match? That they have to make the match that year because they've recorded accrued a benefit on January one, when because the plan provision had no uh, accrual requirements to receive a contribution. You're there, you know that one day a year you, you get it, and it's just. There's no need for it. I, you know, I, again, I work for a TPA that loved the state of match. I hated it. Uh, and I, and I, I, I wouldn't say that I banned it, uh, but I kind of banned it. So, you know, listen, why would you force a plan to sponsor a state of match provision that the business climate may force them to cut back? Uh, you know, that's how I see it. Uh, why should we put them on the hook because we put them in the plan when it really isn't necessary? Um, and that's my two cents. Uh, and, you know, again, it has to be a cutback because the employer can no longer afford it. they got to do it the following year. That's a plan amendment. That's, you know, I don't want to say how much I charge, but I- I'm sure a lot of US attorneys charge a lot more than I do. Uh, in my opinion, the only reason you should ever have a stated matching provision is because it's part of a collective bargaining agreement, and the union wants to make sure the employer is honest. Uh, that's how I see it. But uh, next, uh, last but not least, plans with expired service provider contracts. Um, Obviously, over time, plan administrative expenses have gone down uh, thanks to fee disclosure. Um, I just remember pre-fee disclosure, uh, I worked for a TPA where they had an uh, insurance company provider. The agreements had expired, but the, the terms were still in effect, and plan sponsors are paying, you know, close to 300 basis points. Plant customers were paying close to 300 basis points because uh, they didn't bother to, you know, review their contracts and, you know, negotiate new ones. So I'm sure that their keep uh, the plant sponsors out there with expired contracts are probably paying double what they should be. just because they have nobody to look uh, as to what they're doing. So, anyway, uh, that's it for this episode, a short episode of that 4K podcast. I gotta fix my schedule around. Usually I record on Tuesdays. I'm now recording now on Wednesday because Tuesdays and Thursdays is when my son goes to college and uh, I help him out with getting to college. And, you know, I feel like I'm back in college for some reason. It's, it's just a weird experience. But, anyway, go to that 4k com for further information on all our events and articles. And all that kind of jazz, and you know, still selling T-shirts. I think I sold one in the the, the nine years that I've been running this website. But uh, anyway, tune in for uh, next week for another episode of that 4 k podcast. Thanks. Bye.